Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm at the offices of Ian Bremmer's Eurasia Group as we look at top risks for 2017. Dr. Bremmer joining us. And now joining us from Jamaica, Lawrence Summers. He is Elliott Professor at Harvard University and, of course, a President Emeritus of Harvard and a former Secretary of the Treasury. Professor Summers, wonderful to have you with us. This will be a new presidency. It will be a new Capitol Hill. What is your chief concern, your chief observation, as we are 17 days from an inauguration of President Trump? I think it's a moment of extraordinary uncertainty to an extent that markets seem not to uh, appreciate. There are prospects that things could work out well, at least for some uh, interval, but there are enormous risks to the global economy, enormous risks to the global economy from possible U.S. protectionist measures, enormous risks to the global economy from experimentation in a world where Basic pillars of American foreign policy are up for grabs. Enormous risks to the American economy from a very administration that's going to take a very different approach to American society uh, than has uh, been uh, traditional. Uh, this is probably the largest transition ideologically and in terms of substantive policy that we've seen in the United States in the last three quarters of a century. And those kinds of transitions have to be, given the central role of the United States in the global system, matters of uh, enormous uncertainty. And I don't think that's fully recognized by markets. Okay, fair. I want to go to the market, which is the litmus paper of the system. You know within your academics that foreign exchange analysis goes from Robert Mundell onto Jacob Frankel, onto Kenneth Rogoff, and onto the modern age. Do our markets and do our political system underestimate the risks of a truly strong dollar policy? I think there are risks because you have a a development that is uh, unprecedented in terms of dollar fluctuations, which is the possibility of major policy change in the fiscal area, not in terms of budget deficits, but in terms of the uh, tax burden and subsidy on exports and imports. Remember, the advocates advocates of the tax reform proposal that the House has put forward and that in some ways the president-elect has endorsed with the so-called border tax adjustment, assert that the reason it will work out well 
is that it will lead to a 20% appreciation of the dollar. Well, that's got huge consequences if it happens rapidly for the financial architecture, for anyone who's a holder of dollar securities, for anyone who's a debtor denominated in dollars, for the translation of profits back into uh, dollars. And I just think that the financial consequences have not been fully thought through. And if there comes right. to be a perception that that's got a real chance of happening, I think the risks are enormous. Okay, this is very important, and to synthesize this, Dr. Bremer, is the important paper highly criticized by Professor Summers and others from Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross, the new Secretary of Commerce. Can you fold the caution and uh, not hatred, but the distrust of China, of Professor Navarro, into what Trump economics and politics will be? Well, there's no question uh, that Trump comes into this office um, with uh, a feeling that the most important bilateral relationship in the world, that between the United States and China, is not only not being well managed, but fundamentally this country is taking advantage of the United States and it needs to be, it needs a hard response. And that's happening exactly at the time when Xi Jinping won't take any uncertainty because he's leading into his own political cycle. Larry's point at the beginning is the right one. Please. Right? Which is, from 1998, when we started our firm, when we talk about global political risks, it was emerging markets, you know, it was the Middle East, then the financial crisis hits, you've got the Eurozone. In 2017, leading this document is the United States. America is driving global political risk and uncertainty, and that is not reflected in the markets right now, but it is a fundamental sea change with anything we've seen over the past right. few decades. It's this transition yeah. which matters so much for the rest of the world. With Professor Summers, let's bring in Guy Johnson in London. Guy? Good morning, Professor Summers. Um, how, how possible is it that in a few years' time, we are talking about the fact that the United States has gone through a productivity revolution. Donald Trump talks about repatriating money back to the United States. How does that money get invested into productive capacity? He talks about lowering the tax rate. How does that extra money get, in, get, get reinvested into productivity? How do we make that work? Because if that, would be to, that were to happen, how much would that actually sort of lean into the kind of productivity, to, to the protectionist story that you're talking about? I don't think that gets at the crux of our difficulties. The vast majority of the companies who have large overseas cash also have substantial amounts of domestic cash. And so if they had attractive investment opportunities in new capital, they would be making them out of that domestic cash. The reality is that cash that's brought home will, pay, will be used to pay dividends, to pay back shareholders, to, to buy back shares, to engage in mergers and acquisitions, to rearrange the financial chessboard, not to uh, invest in large amounts of new capital. It is a shimmer to suppose that uh, there will be large increases in capital investment as a consequence of that repatriation. We've done the experiment before, unambiguously during the Bush administration, the people who had been advocates of the policy, the Republican economists who had supported it, did honest work afterwards and evaluated it and found that it produced very little uh, in uh, the way of new investment. 
So this is right. the this is potentially the worst of all worlds. Large flows of capital back into the United States. Large adjustments of the dollar because of the border tax stuff, but relatively little stimulus uh, to uh, new uh, investment. That's right. why I think it's quite uh, dangerous. And I just want to say one other thing. Uh, there are different levels of economic uh, disagree economic uh, disagreements. Economists like me, like Alan Blinder, have disagreements with economists like uh, Glenn uh, Glenn Hubbard. At a further kind of level, well, they're Marty Feldstein. At a further kind of level, they're the people who produced the proposals that uh, when Ronald Reagan ran on them were called voodoo economics. The Navarro-Ross paper is well beyond voodoo economics. The logic of it, the arguments made, are so far out of the mainstream of any kind of responsible economic thinking that they're the economic equivalent of creationism um, or the economic uh, the economic equivalent of the denial of uh, ev of uh, evolution right makes well, the people who like this, people who who say that they doubt global warming look like entirely responsible scientists so right. this paper is to be a guide to U.S. economic policy, and I'm not at all sure that it will be uh, in practice. I think cooler and more rational heads may, may well uh, prevail. But the kind of thinking that is implicit in uh, that paper goes beyond any set of doctrine uh, that right. has been taken up by any administration in my lifetime. From Jamaica, we greatly appreciate Lawrence Summers for joining us. It is the top risk for 2017. David Gurr and I enjoying the uh, good coffee of Eurasia Group. Here in the historic Flatiron District, we can't. We're not allowed to give away the address at no, Ian Bremmer. It's want a to. Security risk. Yeah. Ian Bremmer <laughs> with us, and joining us now to brief Dr. Bremmer is Noel Rubini of New York University. And Noel, I, I read Carmen Reinhart carefully this weekend, and she said the massive distinction of dollar strength now is when we had previous dollar strengths. Just as one example, we had Japan with six percent GDP or even 3% GDP. We're getting dollar strength now with many other countries' economic growth flat on their back. It's a different dollar strength this time, isn't it? Uh, it is a different dollar strength. Uh, unfortunately, there's going to be a divergence between U.S. monetary policy and the rest of the world. Uh, ECB, BOJ, BOE, BOC are going to follow easy monetary policy. The Fed is going to tighten, more so because now the fiscal stimulus by the Trump administration in an economy close to full employment is going to lead to a pickup in inflation. And that strengthening of the dollar, unfortunately, is going to then damage the U.S. economy. Uh, Trump says that he saved 1,000 jobs uh, 
in Indiana, but this current appreciation of the dollar, 5% since the election, is going to cut 500,000 jobs in manufacturing in the United States. And the risk is that then this inconsistent combination of fiscal and monetary policy and strengthening of the dollar is going to lead to more protectionism, more anti-globalization, and more uh, backlash against migration. We saw it even during the Reagan years, where the fiscal stimulus, tight money, the dollar strengthened, and where these, unquote, voluntary export restrictions on steel and auto against Japan. Today is much worse than it was then. Therefore, there is this inconsistent sets of macro policy lead to more protectionism and more of a backlash against globalization. You both have written about the end of uh, Pax Americana near you on Project Syndicate recently, Ian, in the report that we're talking about uh, today. Uh, is, is the end of it inevitable here? And, and sort of what's the, the timetable for it? Is it already in progress, the erosion uh, of that? I think it's been coming for a long time. I mean, you know, frankly, the United States did a lot of damage to itself uh, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Its willingness to be the global sheriff eroded dramatically as a consequence of that. Um, certainly Trump's election uh, also drives a spike into two other areas of critical global leadership for the United States, uh, one being its willingness to be the global trade architect, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, of course, now dead. Also, its willingness to project global values, which is the antithesis of what Trump's America's First is. It's no more U.S. exceptionalism. But even if Hillary Clinton had been elected, if you look at the rise of China, if you look at the willingness of the Russians to undermine the U.S. from a security perspective, look at the weakness of Europe, look at the implosion of the Middle East, you recognize that the end of Pax Americana was coming over time, just that Trump's election suddenly means it's happening now. Noel, what, what interests me here, and you nailed this, I remember talking to you, uh, pre. it'll be my 13th Davos, and I remember way back, you and I sitting at a modest bar having a beverage of our choice, <laughs> and you talking about the crisis to come, you nailed it, but maybe you didn't get the amplitude right, either I didn't get the amplitude right either. Do you have a gauge of the amplitude of what's coming in 2017, the size of movements that you would forecast, or is there just that much uncertainty? Uh, I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty, as we understood. Uh, there is uncertainty about the economic policy, domestic, international, and the foreign policy of Trump. There are a huge amount of uncertainty in Europe. I worry that this is a slow motion train wreck. I worry that Le Pen is going to come to power in France, that this Cinque Stelle movement is going to come to power in Italy. This could be the beginning of the end of Europe and the Eurozone, at the time where Russia is becoming more aggressive in Syria, in Ukraine, in the Balkans, in the Baltics. Therefore, if the U.S. gives up on, the, on NATO and its allies in Europe, that's going to be an opening for Putin's Russia. And there are concerns about, of course, what's going to happen with China. The rise of China it needs to do reforms, not doing them because there is political transformation. And there are security issues in Asia, from North Korea to Taiwan to Japan and other territorial issues. At the time where the U.S. might say, I'm giving up also on my primacy in Asia let alone in the Middle East, where if we give up on our allies and we're following a policy of energy independence, then the conflict between Shia, Iran, and Sunni Saudi Arabia and his allies, Sunni, in the Middle East is going to become even worse. So those are the kind of uncertainties we're facing in the next few years. Mm. Nora Bini, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you at the World Economic Forum. At that Forum. modest bar, perhaps. We, we could go for like an hour <laughs> with Rabini, an hour, you know, Absolutely. we could do like an eight-hour show today. Yeah, well. I mean... It's the new year. It's, it is, the, it is <laughs> the new year, and we're here. And did you survive the new year? Yeah, I did. You know, I've what, come what, through it more exhausted than I started. Exactly. Holidays like it, are like that I had to that come back to me. work to get a rest. I mean, it's to be the truth about it.
put your trust in matters, investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Dominic Parton joins us now. He's Global Managing Partner at McKinsey, and company former Asia Chairman of McKinsey as well, as we continue to talk about some of the risks outlined in Top Risks 2017 from Eurasia Group. Don Burton, great to see you here. Thanks for having uh, me. There's a, there's a line in this report, uh, Eurasia Group, saying we're going to see near-term chaos that comes from an absent superpower. How, how good a sense do we have of what that near-term chaos uh, would look like? I think part of the challenge with chaos is we don't sure. know, right, about where it is. But I, I, um, I think that part of the issue is that is as you, the Eurasia Group and Ian have, have laid out, there are these 10 big factors that are out there. Any one of them is significant. I think how they all kind of work together is another issue. So it's hard to fathom what it might be, but it could be bad. I'm a little more optimistic in the sense that I think we, we could see some significant growth in the U.S. economy like we haven't seen before. Um, and that I think as business leaders, we just you have to just you, you can't freeze. You have to keep moving. Um, but it is a more fragile world, and there there does seem to be, I think as Ian has said, a, a sort of a, a withdrawing of the U.S. superpower, which makes the world less stable. Um, so, what chiefly will be driving that growth uh, domestically? Do you think? I, I think it's the uh, you know I, I think tax reform. I think deregulation, I think there's going to be an, a very aggressive uh, approach to making it easier <coughs> to do business. At least that's mm -hmm. what the, the rhetoric mm -hmm. is. I think the infrastructure investment, um, you know, if the, with tax reform, just being able to bring some of that $2 trillion from overseas back, that's a pretty significant stimulus. Mm -hmm. um, and doesn't take, uh, it, all these things are difficult to make happen, but I think that's not as difficult as McK others. What is McKinsey's research on the value or efficacy of incentives or policy redirection of all that money coming back from abroad? Do you just bring it back and trust Tim Cook to spend it correctly, or does he need to be incentivized to make that path from investment to jobs work? I, I think that, that um, I think it's important for countries, even as big as the United States, to have a bit of an of a industrial policy, if I might even mm. say that sounds very countercultural to say, I don't mean picking winners, but saying there are some areas that we really want to get in and invest behind because there are opportunities. I think in tech that's been the case. I, so I, I think incentives, in a sense, on the tax side to make mm -hmm. it easier for people to do things, deregulation. I would be very nervous about picking winners. You, you must do X, Y, and Z with the money. I, I think that that would make me nervous. I, we get CEOs get enough direction as it is from markets, and I'd be nervous about, frankly, doing anything other than t simplifying tax and, uh, and, and on the regulatory side of things, and putting a spotlight mm. on opportunities, getting research and, you know, business and, and, and the sort of the ecosystem working. That can be useful. Uh, but more than that, I'd be nervous 
because uh, I don't think it'll last. It's not sustainable. We'll come back, but in just about 30 seconds here, uh, the, the geographic divide between Washington and Silicon Valley is 2,500 miles or so, but it seems like it's much larger uh, through this last administration and the one, one before it. Are you optimistic that there's going to be uh, a better conversation between Silicon Valley and Washington? Um, I, I am optimistic, but maybe another thing I might say is, in some ways, I don't think it matters. Mm -hmm. I think the Silicon Valley's kind of said, we don't, frankly, give a good goddamn about what you guys are doing there. We're yeah. doing our thing type of a thing. It's like it's a different world. Mm. And so I think they've been able to operate in that environment. It's not to say that government policy, tax incentives and so mm. forth won't affect it, but they're kind of, it's almost independent mm. in, in yeah. terms of how they do things. Right now, Don Barton with us with McKinsey, which barely describes the research capability of those at Don Barton, the herd of cats that he manages every day at McKinsey, including Richard Dobbs, James right. Manyika, and many others. You stopped me in my tracks last year with Poorer Than Your Parents, just starting with a photograph on the cover of the young lass from 1968 with a Plymouth Charger I couldn't afford uh, at the time. And th it was the most nostalgic yet smartest research piece I saw last year. Thank Help you us much. with your observation when Richard Dobbs dropped this on your desk. What did Don Barton think of the idea that our kids are poorer than their parents? Well, it, it was shocking to see. It was something I think we people have been feeling or worrying when you see the populism and so forth. But as you said, to see that in so many countries, it's not one country. It's in nine countries where, where it is actually worse. The last 10 years have been worse and it's in looking ahead it's even worse and this is this is i think it was shocking just to see this the specificity of it the breadth of it across many many countries and i think it it fits right in with what we're seeing again as i said with populism so, yeah dovetail that if you would for us i think of yeah. roland fryer's new research on this uh, as well out of out of stanford looking again at this at this very same uh, issue We've seen a, a global reach of populism. How disparate is it when you look for threads of continuity among what we've seen in the U.S. and Europe and, and around the world? I, I think the, there, there are variations, but only in terms of how bad it is. I mean, I think one of the th other elements of that work that, that Richard and James did was looking at the nature of work as well, and that's changed. So you well, see the, the gig economy. This is where I wanted to go, the gig yeah. economy. Yeah. Alan Kruger and the work that he's doing at Princeton, and Professor Kruger's been a great, uh, been very kind, I should say, to come on on Jobs Day and other days for Bloomberg. Uh, surveillance. Most of our audience listening to this after putting up with their kids over the holiday <laughs> think the gig economy is a bunch of hogwash. Or yeah. they want to drive I mean, an Uber to get out yeah. of the house. I'm sorry, correct. forget about the high-end <laughs> academics of right. Barton or Kruger. We're going, you got to be kidding me. How do we get back to the full-time benefit-laden perspective that we were advantaged by? Yeah, and, and grew up with. I mean, I, I agree. I, I think about it for not only job security, but training. You think about this world that's moving faster and faster, the yeah. half-life of a skill. Well, this speaks, is, uh, David, to hysteresis, to mm -hmm. Lawrence Summers and Blanchard right. and hysteresis. So, so it's, a, you know, up, I think one, one in, in Spain, 25% of the economy are around independent workers. And, you know, some people want to do that. Most people have to do it because they don't have the jobs. And what I worry most about is the safety net, and, and particularly the safety net around training. Who, who's going to help these people stay current as the world moves faster? Because... In my view, by the way, it's not trade that's dislocating jobs. That, that's been the whipping boy for a while. For a while. It's going to be technology. And uh, you know, ultimately, I think technology is good, but you have to be able to retrain. And who's going to do that? And that's, that, that's where I, 
you know, the, the forces, if we don't do something about it, are going to get worse, mm. I think, before they get better. I'll bring it back to Silicon Valley. We were watching as Safra Katz and Tim Cook and others walked into Trump Tower, sat around that conference right. table and, and met with the, the president-elect. And so much of the focus, when you, when you think about Silicon Valley and the relationship between Silicon Valley and Washington, is centered on privacy and security issues. But uh, I think it's fair to say work is going to be a big uh, issue here. And, and the, the nation, the world, is going to have to reckon with the fact that technology has uh, made it possible for many of these jobs to go away. What type of burden does that place on Silicon Valley? Will the president-elect try to place on, on Silicon Valley? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, that, that Silicon Valley companies are going to have to be much more aware of it. Earlier on in the uh, show this morning uh, with, with Tom, mm. uh, Ian mentioned what Randall Stevenson had been doing at AT&T in terms of taking ownership for training people as they uh, move ahead, spending a lot of money to do it. He could have just laid people off and rehired people. He said it's a commitment we have to make. I think we're going to have to see more of that, corporates which are taking that ownership, because if you just let those people go, you, you're going to have a revolution. There was one, uh, actually, Silicon Valley entrepreneur did very well. It wrote a, a piece that talked about the pitchforks are coming. Mm -hmm. I can't remember his name right now, but literally, be careful, because with this amount of dislocation, without anywhere for people to go, it, it could get very ugly, and we, and we can't well, just flop it off on the government. But that's an inflammatory statement, and I'll be shocked. Uh, I'll be true, uh, David. We've heard a lot of inflammatory statements this morning. The pitchforks are coming. Yeah. What does the gilded aristocracy, the plutocracy do? What can be the reaction besides be the next Charles Dickens novel? <laughs> yeah. That's a, no, I, well, I think we all have to step back and say, what, are we, what can we each do? And I think there are a lot of things we can do as corporates. I think there are things around, as I said, the training side of things, being involved in the educational institutes. We're seeing some, I think, inklings of what may come in different parts of the world. Singapore, with their skills labs that are putting in place, they're putting in, giving every Singaporean over the age of 25 is getting a $500 Singaporean dollar in education budget. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's the notion of we've got to take care of people. Um, you're seeing this in Australia, trying to help understand what are the future jobs going to be? How do we rethink what different educational institutes, corporates do? Business people need to, you can't just assume that's going to happen. If, if we don't get involved to try and play a role in that, we will suffer the consequences. That, that's Because I, 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 I think it's moving too quickly. And, and so I think there has to be more of a sense of collective ownership and an investment. Let me ask you about uh, China, drawing upon your experience as the, the former Asia chairman of, of, of McKinsey. We have this 19th Party Congress coming up uh, in China. Uh, in this Eurasia Group report, a lot of detail about the pressures that places on the, the, the president of China right. uh, now. What's your sense of how reforms are, are going there? And we talk about uh, the pitchforks are coming, the, the rise of populism, the, the, the wealth disparity here in, in the U.S. How does the Chinese government sort of counter that uh, as well in China? Well, I think, I think the, the Chinese government for decades now has been focused on economic growth. And, and I would argue, I don't think they say it exactly this way, but the focus is there on middle class growth. It's strange for a communist country. Sure. But it's, a, it's ensuring, actually, to Tom's point, that there, you will see, your children will have a better life. And that is fundamental. And if you can keep that going, you're going to have the confidence that you need uh, from the people to be able to move forward. So I think that reform will continue. There's, and it is continuing. I think the, the challenge is there's been a very big shift on this anti-corruption mm -hmm. side, which I, in a strange way I think has actually slowed reform down in the state-owned enterprises because everyone's afraid to make the big changes sure. you need to. Uh, but they'll get through it. They're, they're, those guys are so long-term 
on this as long as they but they will be watching mm-hmm. that middle class uh-huh. growth and if it starts going the other way then right. that's problem time every administration steals like theft Goldman Sachs gets all the press but come on they all steal guys from McKinsey men and women from young the young Turks of McKinsey mm-hmm. they disappear off to Washington are you seeing a loss or do you predict a loss of McKinsey talent to this administration or does Donald Trump just not give a hoot about Don Barton's world. I don't know. I think I think we 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 are seeing some of that, and I think uh, it's not just McKinsey. It's a broader group, uh, BCG, other Goldman, as you said, other organizations. I think there's a there are a lot of business people that are involved in this that are looking for people to help with the analytics, with perspectives, with longer term views of where things where how things work. So I, I think we're already seeing it, and we're going to see more of it, and we're supportive of that. I think it's a good, it's a good thing uh, mm. to do. I imagine you'll welcome some back from the, the Obama administration as well. And, and, and what do they bring to the, to the company? Having that government experience, what does it, what does it mean for a company like I, yours? You know, I'm a big believer, and I see Joe and I, I called it the tri-sector yeah. athlete leader, that you're a, a very good business leader, someone who's had experience in the public sector and the social sector, a very good public sector leader, someone who's had good experience in the other two sectors and on and on. And so I think first you just get that, because I think the, the, I'm not saying that business is easier, but I'm saying there are less variables or stakeholders that you have to try and deal with, um, I think, than when you're in government in a, in a, in a major role. Um, and I think that right away changes your mindset um, in thinking about the breadth of, of what you have to do, yeah. how you get things done sure. um, is, I think, more complicated. So you bring right. those... Te- those kind of, I could call it, technical skills uh, that are really useful as yeah. opposed to, you know, so-and-so. Don Barton, thank you so much. David Gurren, Tom Keen from Eurasia Group. Tom Keen and David Gurra, we are thrilled you're with us to begin 2017. Our team put together a really interesting, uh, David, fabulous morning for us uh, to kick off the year. Larry Summers, Nora Rubini, Ian Bremer, our host here at Eurasia Group near the historic Flatiron Building in New York. We just heard from Don Barton and McKinsey, and we'll get to the equity markets in a moment with uh, uh, Douglas Cass. Uh, is well. What were your thoughts over the the interregnum that, that, that we took off and that we were a part on? I, I was able to step away from the news, if only. Did you briefly. tweet off? <laughs> Mr. Trump <laughs> seemed to tweet. There were limits on my tweets. I did read. Uh, I did read his. There is a, a feature on the Bloomberg that sends the tweets that he, he does to your email. So yeah. I was following through that, and uh, he's out with some this morning. You're talking about Obamacare and uh, also General Motors, another company yeah. being called out by the president. My basic, yeah, my basic take is we're 17 days away. It's just suddenly incredible. I thought of that much more uh, upon us than it was. President Obama giving a speech, I believe, next week, a a farewell address that will be broadcast in prime time. We have been dealing the morning with what has become front and center for the markets, which is our politics Mm. and our international relations. As you know, we do finance, we do investment, we do economics. And the distal of that is people actually have to put money at risk. He is... Uh, written for decades, thoughtful notes. Douglas Cass is one of those people that even if you don't agree with him, you're required uh, to read him. Uh, Doug Cass joins us this morning uh, by telephone. It is a Spectrum Enterprise phone line, Spectrum Enterprise nationwide fiber-based network and IT infrastructure 
uh, solutions. Doug Cass, David Gurr was thinking over the holiday. I was thinking over the holiday. You were short. How painful was the holiday for the short one, <laughs> Douglas Cass? Well, as I told you when I was on about a month ago, David and Tom, um, I do like I, I short stocks, but I'm very uh, tight in my um, uh, uh, loss and uh, uh, price discipline. Yeah. And that's that keeps me alive. I'm not actually market neutral right now. Um, but, you know, 17 days to inauguration, but more importantly, 30 days to pitchers and catchers. Um, so it depends upon your perspective. And my yeah. perspective is six, uh, six blocks from Mar-a-Lago, where my office is. Well, the perspective here of politics and folding it into the equity market, for our listeners who are away from the Cassian, not day trading, but the more short-term perspective, what does a long-term investor do? If I'm going to readjust my 401k this, this morning, what is the Doug Cass wisdom on what I should do? I think Larry Summers in the previous segment... Wasn't he something? Uh, ...put it well. I, first of all, those interviews were great, also with Dr. Brenner. Um, he, say, he stated very uh, laconically that, quote, uncertainty, the uncertainty premium should rise, close quotes. And I think that's when, you know, when I construct my surprise list in December of every year for the following year, um, uh, that is uh, really the central theme that I'm employing. I think every year when you do a surprise list, there's one dominant theme, and the dominant theme, of course, is a new presidency. Give us a, a sense here of how you, you put together that list this year. It's, it's prob- uh, possible sure. improbables, as you, as you put it. Uh, yeah. You mentioned well, there's, there's an overarching Trump theme to the Can 15. Can I frame it for a second? Please. Just frame my concept. Um, I think that uh, annual forecasts on Wall Street, at least to me, are mostly an exercise in what Howard Marks calls first-level thinking. Uh-huh. Uh, Marks writes that what's clear to the broad consensus of investors is almost always wrong. First, most people don't understand the process through which something comes to have outstanding money-making potential. And second, the very coalescing of popular opinion behind an investment tends to eliminate its profit potential. So quite frankly, anyone with a clean shirt and a 10% forecasted rise in the S&P is invited uh, and inhabits the business media airways, of course, not Bloomberg. Um, But we, we, we tend, David, to term experts people whose credentials consist of mostly being consistently and wildly wrong about their so-called spheres of expertise. At the same time, they display the stunning lack of self-doubt and humility about their failures. My grandma Koufax used to tell me, and she was a very wise and successful investor, she used to use the words, often wrong but never in doubt. Uh-huh. So we live in this mm-hmm. kind of inauthentic investment mm-hmm. world, yet people perceived to be telling the truth are often shunned by the consensus. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I approach my annual surprise list more unconventionally and outside of the envelope. And you just said I call them probable right. improbables. These are, these are basically overlays. An overlay yeah. is a term in, in betting where the odds of a particular wager are higher than they should yeah. be. And that's how I construct my um, my okay. vision of, of surprises. David, I would note that uh, uh, Mr. Cass uh, quotes Mr. Marx. This is where we're supposed to step in and quote Groucho Marx. I see. But far more importantly, we should quote Richard Marx, <laughs> the great songwriter. And I think it's sort of like the right here waiting. We're, we're sitting in January, right here waiting, as Richard Marx said in his classic Perhaps, song. Perhaps, Tom, I should be quoting Groucho more and saying, <laughs> yeah. um, who wants to be a member of a short club that has me as a member? No, that would be true. 
answer to David Jumpin. <laughs> On your surprise, list number three is no more at real uh, Donald Trump, that the president-elect might be compelled to uh, do away with his uh, active use of, of Twitter. As I just mentioned a few moments ago, we saw two new tweets out this morning, one of which is calling out a company by name. Uh, walk us through how big a risk that is for, for an investor like you. Are you are you waking up, as I assume these, these uh, executives are, with some trepidation that they might be called out by the president-elect here uh, in the early morning hours on Twitter? Yeah, I think my surprise, Dave, is that, is that the security advisors of uh, the Trump administration will basically tell him to cease and desist. Yeah and closes Twitter account, and I'm projecting that Twitter declines, the shares decline by about 20% the day that is announced. And then you have this, this failed operating strategy at the company. There was another uh, management mm-hmm. departure, I believe the head of the Chinese uh, su- a subsidiary of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get increased impatience on the part of the initial founders and investors, and my surprise is that Twitter is sold okay. between $10 and $12 to take under. Uh, in uh, 2017. So no more jumping the, star- the shark, David, from no more tweets like the one we had right. over the weekend or the several that we got this morning. Doug Cass with us. David Gurr coming up, Rodman Rajan, and there's a lot of things he can't talk about. I mean, every nation's different on an exiting head of their central bank. He left in August, of course, uh, from that job as uh, governor of the Federal Reserve Bank uh, of Mm. of India. It's amazing how each nation is different on how they treat this, about what you can talk about, what you can't. India is pretty, pretty strict about Mm. it, but no doubt it will be a uh, good conversation. The Dow up 137 points. And we welcome Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, Bloomberg Television Worldwide, and in India, good morning. With us now is Raghun Rajan. You know him from the Booth School and from Chicago. He's appeared with us so many times. I've done panels with Professor Rajan in Davos at the meetings of the World Economic Forum. But in the recent years, he has been with the central bank of his India. He has now left that position and is greatly restricted in what he can speak of about India. Let me frame it, uh, Raghun, if I can about the continued great distortion. You more than anyone wrote about this in your classic book, Fault Lines. The great distortion is still in place. Ken Rogoff spoke about it in his book, The Curse of Cash. When do we exit our great bond market distortion? Well, I I think we're in the process of uh, exiting. Uh, I think with the Federal Reserve seeing limited room for continued accommodation, and uh, starting to raise interest rates, uh, I think you will see the pressure on other central banks also come off uh, as much as it has been over the last few years to continue accommodation. So uh, my guess is we're in the process of exit. How fast it will be will depend to some extent on conditions in the United States, Uh, what policies the new administration brings, how comfortable the Federal Reserve feels with those policies and whether it feels it needs to move faster or slower, depending on what, uh, what actually the administration proposes and how quickly it will come in. It seems to me that as one pressure comes off, another pressure comes on here. We heard the rhetoric about politics in the Federal Reserve here uh, during the campaign. We're certainly seeing what's happening on Capitol Hill, a new round of senators and congressmen being sworn in today, many of them uh, hell-bent here on changing the relationship between uh, Congress and the Federal Reserve. How does this bank deal with that new politicization? I think it's a, it's a very important issue, and it's, it's there across the world. Uh, because central banks have been the only game in town for uh, the last few years, they've also acquired a, a sense of, uh, of political power 
that certainly creates uh, apprehension amongst the uh, political establishment. Uh, and of course, they would like to control uh, that power. Unfortunately, it is coming at a point when increasingly central bank independence will become important as uh, perhaps inflationary pressures rise and central banks are asked to do the normal thing, which is uh, control inflation, for which uh, we've spent many, many years getting an apparatus which ensures the independence, ensures they can raise rates at the time that is needed without feeling somehow constrained by political pressures. So it, it does, these pressures come at a time when uh, it is really a very delicate situation for central banks. Very delicate indeed. The backdrop to this, of course, is the possibility that we could see policy changes, tax reform, a big infrastructure a spending package, for instance. It seems to me that the Fed is a real uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't position when it comes to, to raising rates here. That they potentially uh, could be blamed for doing the wrong thing whichever way they go. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, given the, uh, as you said, the political situation, this is a time they have to tread very carefully. But I have no doubt that uh, given the tradition they have established, the Fed will do what it thinks is right rather than cater to political opinion. Uh, Professor, and again, this wraps around the top risks of 2017 from Eurasia Group. And of course, Ian Bremer and his team focus on China. We spoke with Secretary Summers this morning about dollar strength. If we look at the research from Robert Mundell and out of Chicago, Jacob Frankel of years ago, the research of Ken Rogoff, well, we can look at the academics of it. You've had to live the reality of currency uh, dynamics. Do you have a concern over a strong dollar in this 2017? Well, uh, I, I think a strong dollar um, is, is natural. Of course, uh, one piece of Ken Rogoff's research says that it's very hard for anybody to predict the exchange, uh, the exchange rate over any sustained period right. of time. Uh, the expectation is the dollar will remain strong, uh, and that certainly is consistent with the Federal Reserve being first out of the box in normalizing policy. That will help other countries in the sense of reducing pressure on them uh, to adopt right. increasingly aggressive policies. For the U.S., it could be uh, a headwind to growth uh, because uh, uh, you know, of the obvious effects on exports and imports. But that said, uh, I think with the kind of fiscal packages that are being thought of or talked about, it may be that it, it, it does more in neutralizing rather than in, in substantially reducing growth. A big focus here of this present elect is on manufacturing, bringing jobs back to the U.S., insourcing, uh, some call it here. How difficult is that path forward going to be uh, for Donald Trump? We've seen him meet with the carrier company at its furnace factory uh, in Indiana, deal with companies on an individual uh, basis here. Uh, how, how, how difficult is it going to be to focus so exclusively on manufacturing? Right, well, um, you know, the, the, uh, the data on manufacturing suggests that over the last 30 years, the U.S. has steadily lost jobs. However, the extent of manufacturing in the United States, the share of GDP, has remained relatively constant. So what's happening is not that the U.S. is losing a tremendous number of jobs to competition elsewhere. Clearly, factories are shutting down, but new factories are opening up in different areas, for example, in high tech. The bottom line, however, mm -hmm. is that the loss of jobs is not so much because the U.S. is <clears throat> uncompetitive in manufacturing, but because technology is replacing jobs, many of them in, in the high-tech industry, again, because we're, we're manufacturing in a, in a smarter way here. 
So in that sense, um, you know, you're really working against the tide of history when you say we're going to bring back jobs. Uh, are you going to also stand in the way of automation, which is probably more important in terms of reducing jobs? Right. And uh, let me just say, this very fine report uh, by Ian Bremer's group has one sentence which, uh, which worried me, and it was a sentence which said something like, uh, the U.S., many people in the U.S. haven't benefited from trade. Mm. I think that's the, uh, the line that's going around, which is tremendously dangerous, both for the United States and the world. Mm-hmm. Anybody in the United States has benefited from trade as a consumer. Just look at the <coughs> prices at yep. Walmart, at Target, and so on. You wouldn't have those prices if you didn't have no. imports from other countries. Yeah. Professor, in the time that we've got left with you, I must ask you about the International Monetary Fund. Madame Lagarde enjoys a second term even after uh, her legal challenges in France. Your name has been shortlisted somewhere down the road to provide leadership to the IMF. Is that an appealing idea to Raghun Rajan? Well, first, we do have uh, uh, a number of years of Madame Lagarde's term, so it's, it's a hypothetical question. Well, we're good at hypothetical. It's hypothetical <laughs> Tuesday. Go with me uh, on this. I, I, think the, I think the important question for anybody who takes over the IMF is how to provide leadership in a world where, as Ian Bremer's group puts it, uh, there is no country willing to take on the mantle of global mm-hmm. hegemon as the United yeah. States used to. When everybody's backing off, uh, it's very hard to do a job as as a okay. leader of a multilateral institution, which is Rag- why Mrs. Lagarde is doing well. Professor, thank you so much. Raghun Rajan with the Booth School in Chicago. We thank Bloomberg Television for being with us today. David, you and I with final uh, thoughts here. What I love about the Eurasia Group, the geopolitical recession, top risks, is the brevity of it. This is a, Ian Bremmer's always rushed. He's always moving on with Willis Sparks and the others, moving on to the next project. And there's a breadth of, of directness to this, which, which is great, leading with America. Yeah, leading with America, independent America, the biggest uh, risk here. Uh, Last year was Chancellor Merkel. There you go. And Chancellor Merkel making an appearance uh, in this piece as well. I'm reminded of this a photo that our colleague Francine Lockwood tweeted out of Merkel uh, with uh, Francois Hollande, Barack Obama, all of these other leaders who have lost their jobs. There is Merkel alone uh, in the mix looking yeah. up. So she faces a, a series of challenges just in terms of her own political leadership within Germany. Uh, this year, and, and that's number four uh, here on the risks. Uh, it's, it's, uh, as you say, a fascinating report, 25 pages and well worth reading. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at Find Your Independent Advisor dot com.